This is a Spirit of Truth Radio Network original program. With St. Patrick's Day approaching, I wanted to find out more about the patron saint of Ireland, to separate fact from fiction, to really get to know the man. So who better to discuss this saint with is my friend, Father Gabriel Burke. In this casual conversation, Father Burke dispels the myths that surround St. Patrick, only to reveal a man of such great faith. Father Burke, welcome back. Thank you. Good yeah. afternoon to you from Ireland, and good morning to you in America. <laughs> uh, I know. it. Uh, that is the, the one thing that we have, that you know, the times that you and I have talked, have always been uh, at different, really odd times of the day, yep. you know. But uh, uh, just want to say that, you know, it's so good to have you back. The reason I asked you to come back, Father, is because we've got St. Patrick's Day coming up here, and as you do in Ireland. And I really wanted to get to know the real St. Patrick, not the, how do you put it? The plastic patties? The plastic paddy. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the real St. Patrick. We'll do better. We'll go back to the origins of Christianity because people have an idea, a myth, that St. Patrick came to Ireland and lo and behold, he converts the whole country. And that's not really true. Where I am, I'm in County Cork but I'm in the province of Munster. And in the province of Munster, there are at least four pre-patrician saints. You have St. Aylby in Cashel, um, St. Aidan down in um, Wexford, and um, there's another saint whose name's gone off my head, Siren, uh, down in West Cork. Mm -hmm. And these men predate Patrick. And so there was Christianity in Ireland. Mm -hmm. How did it come into Ireland? Well, because we're not part of, we were never part of the Roman Empire. So we were never part of the Roman Empire. How did Christianity come to us? Because even though we're in Ireland, we traded. The relationships between County Cork and Bordeaux and Spain go back thousands of years. Ships have been coming back and forth through the Bay of Biscay to Ireland. And so that's the first element that Christianity probably came in with people mixing and that. Mm -hmm. The second one is very easy. After all, St. Patrick himself came to this country how? As a slave. And the Irish people like to beat their chest and say how awful they had 800 years of misery and 800 years of being treated badly by their neighbor they forget that they treated their neighbors very badly that in the sixth century you had irish kingdoms in wales for a brief hundred years in cornwall in the south of england you had irish kings wow. what was caledonia and is now called Scotland, being the land of the Scotty, and the Scotty being Irish, not Scottish. So when you're dealing with the Irish, so Pelagius, St. Jerome tells us that Pelagius was full of his Scotty porridge, his Irish porridge. Hmm. And so the Irish took thousands, God knows how many slaves they took from Britain, because 
the Roman Empire was falling to pieces. Nobody was there. They were plundering it. They were coming in and they took over most of Scotland. They took over the Highland and the Islands and that became Scotland, the land of the Scoti. And then there were Christians and the Pope at the time, Clement something, forget what number, but he sent Palladius over and Palladius and this is where the two stories get mixed up. Patrick and Palladius get mixed up. So people will tell you that Patrick was related to St. Martin of Tours. No, he wasn't. But Palladius was. And Palladius came into Wicklow. And one of the oldest churches we have in Ireland is in County Wicklow on the East Coast. And it's only a bit of a ruin now. Mm -hmm. But it was dedicated to St. Peter and St. Paul. And in it were the relics of St. Peter and Paul that Palladius had brought from Rome. Now, in the annals, they'll tell you Palladius failed in Ireland and went back, went up to Scotland. But they forget that at that time, Scotland, the land of the Scotty, were Irish. So he had gone to the Irish in Scotland. But also we read later, by I think Aquitaine tells us that Palladius had a very um, successful mission in Ireland. Hmm. So now we have to try and sort out fact from fiction. We know that Patrick came to Ireland first as a slave. We know that he learned to pray on the mountains because he was left in charge of the pigs and that, and nobody would feed him. And he was often hungry. He was a bit like the, the boy in the prodigal son. And so he started praying. Now, what do we know of Patrick? Well, people will tell you Patrick was British. Well, no, he's not. He was English. Well, he couldn't be because the whole concept of Englishness didn't exist at that time. Then he was Welsh. No, he wasn't. He was a Roman living in Britain. So first and foremost, he's a Roman. Where did he live in Britain? Well, in Cumbria, in the north, very north of England, they would claim that he came from there. And they've quite a number of pre-Reformation uh, churches dedicated to St. Patrick. Mm -hmm. Now, so he could have come from there. Now, in Wales, there's a beautiful, tiny little chapel, tiny, tiny little thing on an island just off Anglesey. And that is where they believe St. Patrick, when he was washed up from uh, when his boat um, sunk. He was washed up there. So all we can say for definite is that Patrick is a Roman whose native tongue is vulgar Latin and he's living in what we now call Britain. Okay. Now, it gets confusing because at that time the natives of Britain are Britons, which are Celtic. So all of the British Isles, what we call now the British Isles, Britain and Ireland, were Celtic. In, in Irish, in the Gaelic tongue, we call Wales Vratan Bjog, Little Britain, because what was left of the tribes of the Britons lived in Wales and in Cornwall, and then some of them moved to a place called Brittany mm. in France. And so what you have now is a whole mixture on these islands. 
of Celtic people, Irish, Britons, Picts in Scotland. Then, as the Romans are leaving Britain, other races are coming in. And so the first lot to come into the south of England are the Angles that give the term Angleterre, the land of the English. And But some of those Angles also intermarried with another tribe coming in called the Saxons. That's where we and get so Anglo-Saxon, right? Anglo-Saxon is from the mixture of the Angles and the Saxons. And so in the Gaelic language, English people are called Sasnaks, which are Saxons. Okay. And so, but those Saxons didn't exist when Patrick was alive. So Patrick then goes off, we know from his own writings, he goes off and he studies for the priesthood, and then he has a dream in which the Irish are calling him back. So he goes to Ireland, but basically his ministry was, was the north of Ireland because the south was already fairly Christian. And so you have County Down, places like that. But how did he become the patron of Ireland? Because if you look at the early liturgical books, preeminence is given to Bridget, mm -hmm. not to Patrick. And if you look at pre-Reformation Europe, and leave out now the United States, I know I had to say that to you, but leave out the United States. Yeah. The vast majority of churches uh, dedicated to Irish saints are to St. Bridget. All throughout Britain, France, all in Germany, everything. she had a marvellous devotion. And pre-Reformation, there aren't too many churches dedicated to Patrick. Hmm. What happened with Patrick is you've got to go back to politics. Now you're going to church politics. And if you look at a map of Ireland and you look at the diocese, each of those dioceses more or less represents a kingdom. So my own diocese here, the Diocese of Cloyne, represents the kingdom of the McCarthy Moors. The McCarthys were the kings here. At one stage, the McCarthys were the kings of Munster, what we now call Munster. But that split up. And so you have the O'Briens who became Prince of Thomond, which is North Munster. And McCarthy Moor became Prince of Desmond, South Munster. Okay. But they fragmented. Whereas up in Armagh, they were mainly high kings of Ireland as well. So not only were they rulers of Ulster, they were rulers of Armagh. And so by the time the Normans are coming to Ireland, Armagh has made itself the preeminent diocese in the country. And so in the Council of Rathbrassel in 1111, the Irish bishops met and they reformed the Irish diocese. And there were to be two archbishops. The Archbishop of Armagh, that was to be the primate of all Ireland, mm -hmm. and the Archbishop of Munster, who was to be the primate of Munster. It was Rome that sent back four pallia and created the Archbishop of Armagh, 
the Archbishop of Dublin, the Archbishop of Cashel, which is Munster, mm -hmm. and the Archbishop of Tuam. And it also gave primacy to both Dublin and Armagh. So Armagh became the primate of all Ireland. Dublin became the primate of Ireland. So St. Patrick really is entangled in that politics of Armagh becoming the preeminent diocese in the country. And so lots of things. Yet first of all, you had to get rid of Palladius. So you make Palladius out to be a disaster and is sent off to Scotland. And then you add in, and all these other tales of Patrick then are really a mixture of Patrick and Palladius. So being a relative of St. Martin of Tours, having studied in France, having been sent by the Pope, they're actually Palladius. Wow. Patrick comes from the British church to Ireland. And he comes to a place in Ireland that is very few Christians, whereas Palladius had come to Leinster, which was Christian. And then Armagh builds up, builds up, builds up, so that Bridget comes down, come down, come down, and Patrick gets hyper and hyper. So that by the time the Normans come into Ireland, Patrick has been declared patron of Ireland. Now, the Normans like things to be in proper order. And it's the Normans who bring about the county system in Ireland. So I live in County Cork. All this, they bring that in because they like order. They like things to be neat and tidy. They like to be able to rule things. And when it comes to the church, they like things to be simple. So Patrick then becomes ingrained as the patron saint of Ireland. So you go on until the Reformation. Mm -hmm. And so the Reformation, we lose all our churches. You see all these beautiful old cathedrals in Ireland and you wonder, how are they Anglican? Well, they were robbed from us. They were taken from us. As simple as that. Mm -hmm. The cathedral of my diocese is really in a place called Cloyne, a village. Mm -hmm. But that cathedral is in the hands of the Anglicans. So when we became free in 1827, we built our own cathedral in Cove, what used to be known as Queenstown, which is the last town that the Titanic pulled into before we went to America. And so St. Patrick gets caught up then uh, in nationalism and everything. Have you ever wondered why we have St. Patrick's Day parades and not St. Patrick's Day processions? Because usually a religious parade is a procession. Right. You go down to, yeah, you go down to, I used to love them in New York. You go down to Little Italy and you see these, Our Lady of Mount Carmel, or um, you go down to different places and they have beautiful processions with a statue but ours are called parades and this is again something that we inherited from the British hmm. because when the Irish troops belonging to the British army were stationed in North America British North America as it was then hmm. they were stationed in New York and the parade that's in New York today comes from the parade of the British soldiers in the 1700s. Okay. And that's why ours are parades and not processions, because they come from the British Army, not from religion. <laughs> wow. That's, it's amazing how, how things like that, you know, last. I mean... It's, Absolutely. It's tradition. You know, you have, the, you have the tradition of Patrick 
getting rid of the snakes. I wanted to ask you about that. Which are never snakes were never in Ireland to begin with. We had the water had broken off mm-hmm. Britain and Ireland before snakes came over. So there are certain things we don't have in Ireland that they have in Britain. They have snakes in Britain. We don't. They have moles in Britain. We don't. There are loads of little mammals that they have that we don't. Because by the time they got to Britain, the waters had risen between Ireland and Britain, and they never went over. But what you do have in St. Patrick, and this is the beauty of St. Patrick, and when you strip all the legend, forget about all the legend, you have a very humble man who's had a very tough time. He was kidnapped. Mm -hmm. He was treated badly. He was half fed. Nobody cared about him. He was left on the mountains by himself. That gave him the spirit to pray. And he tells us that he prays more than a thousand times a day. And he really, really begins to pray. And our Lord gives him the chance to escape. And he takes that chance. And then he's reunited with his family. That must have been fantastic. It must yeah. have been a fantastic experience. And then he goes off and he starts training. Now, he would have had Latin, but you see, there's a difference, different levels of Latin. In the church, you have a kind of an ecclesiastical Latin nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, but even at the time of Patrick, you have a difference. You have most of the boys would have been educated in classical Latin. But that was not the Latin that they spoke in every day. Um, it's a bit like learning Shakespearean English. Mm-hmm. And then we talk in our ordinary everyday English. And it's the same with the Latin. At that stage, Latin of Cicero and all that had become quite uh, for the um, learned. And then there was an ordinary everyday Latin that was used. When you, op- so, when you opened, you, you, you mentioned it as being the vulgar Latin. The vulgar Latin, as we have in the, you know, the Vulgate. Mm-hmm. The vulgar just means the language of the people. Not profane. <laughs> Not, no, no, no. It's, <laughs> it's the language of the vulgar, which is the, the, the ordinary people. Okay. Whereas the Latin of Cicero was different. And so when Jerome comes to, even though Jerome is classical learned, he puts his Latin into the vulgar tongue, the language of the common mm-hmm. Latin speakers. So Patrick would have had that Latin, but he wouldn't have had the Latin that you would have needed in the church and needed to be able to study Cicero and Greek because his education didn't seem to be complete. So he was obviously kidnapped at about 14 or so. Hmm. And then well, what you get from Patrick then is this utter belief that he is doing the will of God, that he has been sent to the Irish by God. Mm-hmm. And what you find in his confessions is that he is a, a man who has learned his sacred scriptures. He knows his scriptures inside out and upside down. And he is a man that is practical. So In Ireland, for instance, when Christianity came, there are two strands in Christianity when it comes to paganism. 
one very much represented nowadays by the evangelicals you have in America mm-hmm. that see the devil everywhere and see in the old pagan religion devil worshipping. Mm-hmm. And then you have the other strain which sees through the eyes of St. Paul that pagans were prepared by God. They, you know, they knew there was a God and they created their own gods because they didn't know the true God. And God allowed them to do that until they discovered the true God. And so pagan things were kept in a certain sense. You baptized them and you made them Christian. So, for instance, when you come to Ireland, you see funny little rituals at Holy Wells and things like that, where they'd walk around saying seven Our Fathers, seven Hail Marys, seven Glory Bees, and you have to walk clockwise, and they're in Holy Wells. These were all probably ancient pagan sites that have been converted Mm -hmm. and given a Christian name. And so that comes from Patrick. So we, we don't see in paganism oh, it's full of devilness, the devil worship. No, no. We see God as allowing that and allowing people to get a taste of him through their false religions until they tasted the true faith. And that's certainly what happened in Ireland. But again, Christianity didn't come about all at once because you still see in the manuscripts talking about paganism in the 8th and 9th century. But it gave an impetuous to the faith and it, it brought part of the country that hadn't been part of the faith into the faith. But it's, it's, it's his belief in God and it's his utmost trust in God and it's his practicality that makes him so. He gets accused, you know, of, of some sin that we're not sure what it was. But like, we do know that um, Patrick would be in trouble nowadays if he lived. Why is that? Because he, because, well, he knew that Irish kings could be bought for a little bit of money. So he'd be arrested for bribery nowadays <laughs> because he used to give gifts and that and win them over through their gifts and win them over through money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but nowadays that would be a no-no. <laughs> well, it sounds like American politics to me. <laughs> yeah, <but>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's how he got that. But, he, you know, some people would look in that wrong. But, you know, you have to deal with the situation you have and deal with the people you have, not as you would like them to be. Mm-hmm. And then he brought over to us the sacred liturgy and he would have brought over, you hear all these people talking about the Celtic Rite. But, you know, um, I studied for my degree. My thesis was on the Mass in Ireland from the time of Patrick to the 12th century, which is when the Romans came, or the, the Normans came. Mm-hmm. And basically what you have in Ireland, and our oldest missile in Ireland is only 8th century, um, but you have basically the Roman Rite with Irish things added to it. So I don't know whether you're familiar with Irish families saying rosaries. But in the Irish family, after they finish the rosary, they have what they call the trimmings. Now, the trimmings can be a whole load of other prayers. And sometimes the trimmings is longer than the rosary. (laughs) So you have all these prayers that are added on and all that. And that's exactly what the liturgy was. Basically, you have the Roman canon. Mm-hmm. And so in the Roman canon, where you have a list of those saints, you know, when you're praying for Clement and Simon and Peter and all that, 
in one section you have about a hundred Irish saints put into it. And then and the second half you have another hundred Irish saints. And the, the major difference would be at the beginning of the Mass. Hmm. In the beginning of the Mass, in the pure Roman Rite, you have the Confiteor, you have the Kyrie. Mm -hmm. In the Irish, you didn't. You had this litany of saints. And there was the Gloria didn't really be part of the Irish Mass. It was more part of um, Lods. I think it was Lods or Matins. It was one of them. And then it came into the Irish Mass. So, but what you have is Patrick with a form of the Roman Rite coming into Ireland. And that's why, you know, you have Anglicans who say, oh, well, we went back to the purity of Patrick's faith. No, they didn't. Hmm. And one of the oldest hymns to the Eucharist is an Irish hymn written in Latin. And so that comes to us from Patrick. So when people tell you there was a Celtic church and all that, nonsense, absolute nonsense. Or as you would say in America, baloney. It's not true. The Irish believed in the Eucharist. They believed in the Mass. They believed in the Liturgy of the Hours, what we call now. In fact, the canons of St. Patrick, there are a bunch of rules that supposed to be from St. Patrick, but it tells you that a priest has to offer up every Sunday the Holy Offering, which is the Mass, and it tells you that the priest has to lead the office every day in his church. Hmm. And so this thing about, oh, the Irish church was this and that, it, might, it was different in some sense because unlike the Roman Empire, we did not have cities. The Irish people did not live in cities. You know, you'd, you'd kind of a, the biggest thing you had was maybe a village. Okay. But you definitely had no cities. We didn't have cities. So therefore, our churches didn't look like European churches where you have parishes and things like that. Because, as I said already, the dioceses were what the kingdoms were. Mm -hmm. And what was a parish was called a parochia. But it could be, you know, a small little area or a big little area. And if you notice... Most of our old churches are very small. Yeah. So they were actually were very small communities. And when you're looking at the the mass in, in the missile, the stone missile, it, you're cutting up. So you start off with a big piece of big piece of bread, mm -hmm. and then you have to cut that up into so many things. So one big circle in the mi middle represents Christ. Then there are or 12 around that representing the apostles in it. But, but the most that you have out of one big host is 64, which means that you didn't have an awful lot of mass. Or if you did, they weren't going to communion. Or if, or else, as some of our churches are extremely small, that was the total capacity you could have in the church. But there's tiny little churches dotted all over the place. But that's the thing about Patrick that he's Roman via Britain <laughs> mm -hmm. and via the liturgy of Britain and via the practices of Britain. And so he brings those over. And so later on, when you hear people talking about, oh, there was Celtic church and the Easter was different. The Easter was different because, again, we were always not in the Roman Empire. We were always a bit cut off from the rest of Europe. So when the changes came into Europe on the calculation of Easter, it never came as far as Ireland. And so this friction between the Irish and the Europeans went right up till the ninth century. 
because the Irish were still calculating by the method that they were given by St. Patrick, which had been superseded mm -hmm. by uh, um, further reforms in Rome, but they had never come to Ireland. And the other difference is supposedly the tonsure. Yeah. In most Europe, you have a little round here, whereas in the Irish, it was supposed to be cut off from here to here. Now, if you've ever met um, Hasidic Jews, yes, a lot of them are shaved. They have their curls here, yeah, but their head is shaved all across here, yeah, and the curls out. So it probably is a biblical reference because the Irish were very, very biblical, and very big into the Old Testament. So that what developed in Ireland was also Sabbatarianism. We did nothing on the Lord's Day. Mm. Absolutely nothing. And um, that's one of the reasons why you have so many churches in Ireland. Because the sabbatical walk was no more than five miles. So you couldn't walk any more than five miles. So you've, like even in my own parish, mm -hmm. you have three churches. And they're all within five miles of each other. Wow. So that you didn't have, so St. Patrick, let people get rid of the legends that have built up over him. He was a Briton, not British, a, a Roman in Britain, I should say, not British, mm -hmm. as some people maintain. He was of a Roman family. His first language would have been Latin, a kind of a vulgar Latin, the Latin of the people. That's why he had difficulty when he came to Ireland, because, of course, we spoke Gaelic, Gaelic, and um, the people of Britain, there's, there's a split in the Celtic languages. Scotland, Isle of Man, and Ireland spill, speak what they call Gaelic, a Gaelic language, whereas in Britain, the Britons, well, nowadays, the Welsh, the Cornish, and the Britons in North France speak Brythonic. So you'll see in a lot of Welsh, a lot of letters of X, W, Y and all that, which we don't have. We use fadas and dots and mm -hmm. things like that. And, but there are and nobody similarities. Can, and nobody language. knows what language the Scottish people are speaking. They speak Gaelic, Irish Gaelic. <laughs> in fact, there's no difference between us. Uh, sorry, there is. There's a difference in the Spanish. But it's when they speak English, you haven't a clue what they're saying. <laughs> That's absolutely right. Because, you know, they just... Especially if they're from Glasgow. I mean, if they're from Glasgow, they have a really tough, um, you know, accent. And you just look at them and you go, yep. The barbershop that I go to, they're always playing soccer or football, as you call right. it. And they'll have some of the, the Scottish guys on there. And, and it's just, you, you wonder <laughs> what they're saying. But You say football. Football in Ireland is not soccer. No. Football in Ireland is Gaelic football, which is a football that's like soccer yep. with a round ball, but you can use your hands oh, as okay. well as your feet. So we have, and that's big, big, big. But St. Patrick, as I say, read, if, if you want to get to know him, read his confession, because that is fantastic. And you get to see the real guy. And, you know, you forget about all this leprechauns and you know don't i hope the americans don't take this wrong <laughs> when i was a kid we used to laugh at the americans because they used to dress up in green mm -hmm. and they'd be dressing up in leprechauns and chicago would 
the river that I don't know what the name of the river is in Chicago, but they used to dye that green. Yeah. And we used to laugh at this and go, <laughs> now the very same thing happens in Ireland. The Irish have become plastic paddies. They have taken on all this nonsense of leprechauns and dancing and wearing green. Mm -hmm. You know what the color of St. Patrick is? What? Blue. Why is that? It's the color always associated with Patrick is blue, not green. Green became a national symbol from the um, 16th, 17th century. Okay. But before that, blue was, if you look at the original um, coat of arms for Ireland, it is blue. Okay. With a golden harp, a made of iron harp. Now the presidential coat of arms is blue with the harp of Tara. But it was always blue. The Kingdom of Ireland was always blue. Because, and if you if you go to UCC, uh, one of our, or UCD, I mean, in Dublin, uh, the gowns that are worn, the ribbons, you know, the academic ribbons, mm -hmm. their academic ribbon is blue, St. Patrick's blue, for engineering. Wow. And if you look at our, the houses of our parliament, both in Ireland and in Northern Ireland, you'll see the carpet down is blue, blue for St. Patrick. Hmm. Because Patrick's color is blue, not green. So dye the <laughs> river in Chicago blue, not green. <laughs> How can we really celebrate an, an honest St. Patrick's Day? By going to Mass and praying. And when I was a kid, we used to, the parades were different. They were less commercial. Mm -hmm. And they were lovely. They were all, you know, your local Boy Scouts, girl guides, all the local organizations would come out, the GAA, the, the Football Association, the Hurling, they would all come out and they'd march in their parade. Now it's gone very commercial. It's gone. So I wouldn't bother with the parades. I'd go to Mass. The day before St. Patrick is a day of fasting anyway. The day of St. Patrick, we're allowed to, the tradition always in Ireland was you were allowed to break your Lenten fast. Mm -hmm. And that's how I do. But the biggest thing I would do is have mass and a family dinner. And I think the best things for family to do on a Sunday afternoon or any afternoon is to go out for a walk together. And go out and walk together. And maybe while you're having your little walk together, you could say your rosary. What better way could you have of celebrating St. Patrick's Day? A man of prayer. So pray. A man of the church. So go to church. That's beautiful. All the other things are nice. But I, I, think, I think the family walk nowadays... Uh, isn't used anymore and I think it's a detriment to the family and if you look at the Europeans even though they've lost the faith you go to Spain when the siesta is finished at five o'clock you see all the families out for a walk together the same when I stayed in France you see in a Sunday afternoon families walking together whole families teenagers and everything that rare species called a teenager that's all the trouble. But they're always there with their mums and dads. They go off with their teenage friends afterwards. 
But that walk is sacrosanct. And I think we need to get back to that. You know, we've filled our times with football matches and this and that. And on a Sunday, we go off to this and that. Don't. Mm-hmm. Go off for a walk with your children. Yeah. Chat with them. Listen to them. Be a family together. And pray together. And I think that will do our societies far more than parades and this and that. All noise. Spend quality time with your family. That's the beauty. And that's the beauty of a day off. Now, of course, it's not a day off for you in America. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> it is for us. It's a public holiday for us. Is it really? Both, yeah, in Ireland and in Northern Ireland, it's a public holiday. Hmm. And so we, but I would, if I had a family, that's what I'd do. I'd rather have that, have a nice family dinner, get up from the table, let's go for our walk together. And while we're having our walk, why not say our rosary? And then come back and sit down maybe and maybe switch on YouTube, uh, a film about St. Patrick or something like that. You know, there's loads of stuff nowadays. Or listen to a podcast. Or read Mm -hmm. about St. Patrick. And answer the questions kids might have. And if you don't know the answer, say to them, I don't know the answer. We'll find that out. That could be half the fun, is finding out yeah. together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, we if we stick as families together, we do far better. Mm-hmm. And our children will really appreciate. I remember growing up, you see, um, I came from a very Protestant part of Dublin. So we didn't play sports on a Sunday, like the rest of Ireland. And my fondest memories of Sundays are going to Mass in the morning, having your typical Irish roast for dinner, mm-hmm. roast beef with all the trimmings, and then going for a walk. Either we during the winter months, we'd go for a short walk around, because it gets dark in Ireland very early. Mm-hmm. And during the summer, we'd drive up to the Dublin mountains, get out of the car and walk across the mountains. But they're the fondest memories for me, and, uh, and especially of family. And I think doing that is far better than going off to places where entertainment is set for you rather than entertaining yourself. We had talked a little bit before we came on, on the show um, about a, an Island that's off the coast of Ireland. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually off the, it's in a lake up the North of Ireland and it's called Loch Dark. Okay. But it's official name is St. Patrick's Purgatory. And it's probably one of the oldest places of pilgrimage in Ireland. And in medieval times, it was very famous all throughout Europe. There was an indulgence given to it. Now, what you do is you arrive before three o'clock on the day you're coming. And the boats bring you from the mainland to the island on Loch Derg. Loch in Irish is lake. Loch Derg is the Red Lake. And so... As soon as you get onto the island, you put your bags into this place where you do it, and you have to take off your shoes and socks. Because mm. for the next three days, you're going to be walking around on stones and that barefoot. Mm. And then you're not allowed to eat. So you, before you go onto the island from 12 midnight the night before, you don't eat or drink anything. And then on the island, you're allowed a, a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, but no milk. 
which for us Irish is terrible because we take milk in tea and coffee. Oh. And so you have black tea or black coffee, or you can have, um, yeah, black tea or black coffee, or they have this thing called Loch Derg soup, which I swear I'd say is just hot water with salt in it. <laughs> I'm convinced it's just hot water and salt. There's no soup in it. And then you're allowed a slice of bread with that, or they have these things called oat cakes. It's kind of a bread made from oat. So the first night you don't sleep. You go into the basilica and the candle is lit at six o'clock and you remain awake till six o'clock the following morning. And you do certain rounds. There are certain types of prayers to be done inside the basilica. And outside you do these traditional Irish, what we call rounds or patterns, where you go round and round and round and you say seven our fathers, seven Hail Mary, seven glory be. Then you walk around the basilica and when you get to the there's a certain part in the basilica, outside the basilica you get and you go, you put your arms out in a cross three times. I renounce the world, the flesh and the devil. And then you um, do the bed. Then you're inside the basilica for the night. Then six o'clock in the morning, the bell rings and you have mass. And then you do the rounds again outside, whether it's raining or snowing. or uh, And the biggest penance I can tell you in Lockdown is not walking barefoot on stones the biggest penance is these little insects called midgets we call them midgets in ireland and they keep biting you while you're and they go around the place that's the biggest because they leave you marked so but that's what you do the next day you're allowed again a lockdown meal which is the tea or the coffee or the soup with the slice of bread or the oat cake mm -hmm. and then you're allowed to go to bed that night you should go to bed at six o'clock and I tell you, you fall fast asleep. And then you wake up the next morning, you do the final rounds and then you leave the island at about 12. But you're not allowed to break your fast until midnight. Wow. However, on the second day, you are allowed to drink. Or the, the, the day you leave the island, you are allowed to drink um, tea and coffee and um, what you call um, soda. Mm-hmm. You're allowed to, to have that, but only in, you know, only a little. Mm -hmm. And then you have your first meal. So what normally happens is, well, when I was younger, I did them and you'd get the bus early in the morning from Dublin. So that was fine. You didn't have to worry about eating anything. And when, by the time you got home from Dublin after 12, because it's up in Donegal and there were no motorways at that time. So it was great because by the time you got home anyway, it was about 11 o'clock at night. So you'd wait up. And then as soon as the bell rings midnight, you start stuffing your face. <laughs> but nowadays the roads are a bit better, so you probably have to wait a bit longer. But mm -hmm. it is now the other great place of St. Patrick is a place called Crowpatrick, mm. which is a mountain. And then now people do go up a barefoot. They're asked not to because the stones are very sharp mm. and you could cut an archery. But they still go up barefoot. Most people go up shoed. Mm -hmm. But there are some hardy people who go up barefoot. And you walk up, and that's usually on Reek, Reek Sunday, which is the um, first Sunday in July. Mm -hmm. And then there are, there's a tiny little chapel on the top of, Cro of um, Crowpatrick. And Mass is said there all the time, every half hour on Reek Sunday. Mm -hmm. Now, that was supposed to be the um, a place of fasting for um, 
St. Patrick. And Crow Park was, or Crow Park, Jeremy, Crow Patrick was where, uh, Lockdown was where the St. Patrick's Purgatory, they used to go into a cave, but the, the cave was destroyed by Cromwell. So the church was built in, and you're going to the cave and it, it's to represent you being locked up in the sepulchre with Christ. Wow. And then the next day you rise with him. So that's why it's called St. Patrick's Purgatory. But it was well-known pilgrimage throughout Europe. And there's a lot written about it in medieval times. They're the two main places. Of course, on St. Patrick's Day, the biggest place to go would be in Down Patrick in County Down, which is where his body is. Okay. Now, whether it's still actually there or not, I don't know. Nobody's opened up the grave, but there are three... Supposedly three apostles of Ireland buried there. Patrick, Bridget, and Colin Kill. Now, when they were brought there, I'm not sure, but they were buried in Down Patrick. And so there's, there's been a rediscovery in Ireland of pilgrim ways. Mm -hmm. And so there is now, I believe, I haven't done it myself, but I believe there is a St. Patrick's Way really? up in County Down. Yeah. Um, uh, there's been a lot of old pilgrimage paths brought back to life. Um, people uh, like to walk nowadays. Yeah, I just uh, had a nice conversation with Andy Bull over in London, who is um, kind of really the Walsingham yes. Camino. Uh, well, he would have done with me many times the walk from uh, at Pentecost from um, Notre Dame de Paris, the cathedral in Paris, mm -hmm. to Notre Dame de Chartres. And we would have walked uh, 60 odd miles in two and a half days. Wow. And then what used to happen is that each country would have its own then during, and that's what has developed in England hmm. in the Walsingham Way hmm. uh, with the Latin Mass Society. You should see it in, if you ever get to go to the Chartres pilgrimage, mm -hmm. you should. Now, I did have a chat with an American priest once about bringing pilgrims over from America. Mm -hmm. And you see, we don't sleep in hotels when we're walking. We sleep in these big, either you bring your own tent mm -hmm. or you share a tent with 30 or 40 other people, big old military tents. And um, there are some conveniences, but they're very basic. And for the two days, the two mornings you're going to be washing, you wash yourself in freezing cold water. <laughs> mm. yeah. But there's about 10,000 people walk that walk wow. from Paris to Chartres every Pentecost. And you'd look back, you look in front of you, if you're in the middle of it, you're looking in front of you and you see it snaking all the way down to Chartres. And then when you're looking back, you can see all the walkers going miles back and every um, group is, is a chapter mm -hmm. and each group has a cross and the flag of its nation and a banner and so you see all these fluttering in the wind and everything and you, you have these great masses outdoors and the silence mm -hmm. you know you come to the consecration and the bell rings and there's just silence it's amazing Beautiful. absolutely amazing Beautiful. you should experience it sometime well, one of the things that I really want to do if I ever get over to, to um, Europe is to actually get to meet you in person, Father. I mean, that would, <laughs> you know, and then we could have, you know, an along the way live 
from from uh, Ireland. With a nice glass of Middleton rare whiskey. Oh, you speak my <laughs> language, Father. I don't care. <laughs> That's good stuff, I guess, huh? Oh, it's absolutely. It's the best. It's about, I think it's $150 a bottle. Wow. But wow. it is the best. Well, I, you, Father, you, I, I don't know if I, I think I told you about this before, but Heaven's Door, Bob Dylan's signature whiskey, it's it's about $50. Oh, right. It's about $50 wow. a bottle. It's it's a, it's a Tennessee whiskey, but it's it's very, very good. My dear boy, there is no whiskey outside of Ireland. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> well, it is the water of life, Father, right? Ishkabaha, the water of life. Oh, I love that. I love it. No, you're we right. Taught, we taught we taught the Scottish how to make it, but we didn't let them into all our secrets. No, you didn't. That's why Scottish is never as good as Irish. No, it's it... never as smooth and as loving going down your throat. I, I'm telling you, <laughs> you know, you live in Cork, Ireland. There's um, I do. There's a uh, distillery. There in, is in West Cork, and in East Cork. Well, there's one in West Cork. Oh, there is. You're right. There is one in West Cork. There I, is, yes. I think it's rather new, a, a new yes, it's enterprise. A new one. But they make a really, really nice whiskey. Yeah, because you see, you're in the land of saints and scholars. God always helps out with the whiskey making here. Whereas the rest of you just have to do it with humans. And that's why it's not as good as the Irish. <laughs> well, on St. Patrick's Day, do we get to have a... a Oh, you can. You can have your glass. Okay, that's good. You can, and and in Ireland, even if it's a Friday, you're exempt from the meat fast. So, if St. Patrick happens on a Friday in Lent, mm -hmm. you can have your bacon and cabbage, or your corned beef and cabbage. Very nice. Very nice, Father. One more thing. Well, yeah. actually, two more things. Tell me just a, just really briefly about the shamrock. How did Patrick use the shamrock to teach about the Trinity? He didn't because that would have been a heresy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we ha so we have that solved now. Um, that solved. He didn't, but it's a good it's a good story, and it, it has become a symbol of Ireland, and um, it really is. But he didn't. Okay. It's um, another one of those legends, like the snakes. Okay. Now stick to the man and and read his confession. Okay. I've, and that is just absolutely beautiful. I've got it here. And I'm, it really gives us. I've got it here and I'm, I'm planning. It's on my, my book list, uh, reading list of books to read. And then I think it's next in my, my, my list. Father, you know, Ireland has had a lot of, of saints and blesseds and stuff like that. Uh, we're, you and I have been talking about doing a series yeah. of the, who are they? Are they the forgotten blesseds or? You see, you have, you have lots and lots of Irish saints that go way back pre-reformation. Mm -hmm. But for such a Catholic country, we have no modern saints. And part of the problem was that the church in the last hundred years was trying to bring a nation out of poverty. Mm -hmm. And so it spent all its energy on hospitals, schools, 
clinics, um, social works. I mean, some of the biggest organizations in this country started from the church, started mm -hmm. by priests. And we built churches all over the place. We built schools all over the place. We built all these things. But I think along the way, we forgot the most important. And that is we need to build up saints. And so we have a lot of people that in any other country would have been canonized by now. Mm -hmm. You look at Archdeacon Kavanagh and Nock, you know where the apparition was? Yeah. He should be a saint. You have Blessed Edmund Rice, the founder of the Irish Christian Brothers. You have Nano Nagel. You have Catherine McCauley. You've got there that was just launched recently the cause for the canonization of Father Willie Doyle. Now, Father Willie Doyle was ordained. There was only two in his class, and he was ordained with a man called Father John Sullivan, who is now Blessed John Sullivan. Hmm. You have the Venerable Matt Talbot, who's an ex-alcoholic. You have down here little Nelly of Holy God, who, when the Pope heard about her, Pius X in 1910, changed the teaching on First Communion. Up until 1910, you received baptism, confirmation, and First Holy Communion. And First Holy Communion was roughly about 14, 15 years of age. So if you look at the life of St. Bernadette mm -hmm. of Lourdes or St. Teresa of um, Lisieux, you see that they make their first communion when they're 14, 15 years of age. They had made their confirmation whenever the bishop came around, so sometime after the age of seven. Hmm. It was because of little Nelly of Holy God and her desire to receive communion at the age of four that Pius changed the teaching and said that people could receive First Holy Communion from the age of seven. So here's a great influence on the whole church, and yet she's still not beatified. And you've counted us, you have over 200 names as martyrs. We have a small list of martyrs that we celebrate, um, 17 of them, but there's another 200 names hmm. to go on to that. Now, one of them, for instance, would be a relative of the famous Edmund Burke, the politician. Mm -hmm. He has two relatives who are on the list of canonization. Mm -hmm. He has Nano Nagel, the founder of the Presentation Sisters. Her mother and Nano's mother were sisters. So Nano and Edmund Burke were first cousins. Going back a generation, in Edmund's family, is Sir Richard Burke, who was a local lord in Limerick and was hung, drawn, and quartered for continuing to offer his house for mass. Hmm. So you have a whole list of these who have never been beatified. And like, I know there's a list gone to Rome of 200, but nothing is ever said about them. There are never any novenas. There are never prayer cards, nothing. I don't know how the bishops expect them to be beatified because you need prayers, you need miracles. Mm -hmm. 
the same with um, all the other saints. Nobody pushes them because, you know, I don't know whether they're embarrassed about sanctity or what, but they're never pushed. You look, I mean, look at the amount of Irish in America yeah. that have been canonized. You have your own Father McGinnity. You have, um, what's that man's name? Father Solanus. Casey. Casey. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Like, they would still be lingering here. I mean, the Knights of Columbanus, the equivalent in Ireland is the Knights of St. Um, St. Columbus. No. No, the Knights. No, yours are Knights of St. Columbus. No, ours are the Knights of St. Columbanus. Right. That's it. Ours are Columbanus. That founder, nobody's ever pushed his cause. Mm-hmm. The founder of the St. Joseph Priest Society, which prays for vocations and also collects money to pay for vocations. She has never been. The founder of the Vincent de Paul in Ireland has never been canonized. You know, all these people, there's so many. In my first parish, there were two priests buried in that parish, one beside the church and one in a very old graveyard. The people still, 100 years after those men have died, still come to those graves to pray. Now, again, they would have been in any other country, they would have been at least beatified. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what it is about the Irish and saints. Is it because these saints are just ordinary? There's nothing spectacular about them. I mean, if I told the people tomorrow that I had somebody coming from the monastery of of St. Padre Pio, Mm -hmm. I'd have thousands at my church. Because they seem to go for people like Padre Pio that are spectacular and do spectacular things. But like, let's face it, sanctity is just doing the ordinary things in an extraordinary way. Mm. It's not these spectacular things. It's just doing the will of God every day in your life. As dreary and as boring as that sounds. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. And I think that's the problem. You see, all these people don't do spectacular things. They just do not And like... When you think about it, I mean, Edmund Rice, could you imagine, I know he's not really a person, but he should be there, but Donald Trump, could you imagine Donald Trump giving up all his wealth to build schools for poor boys all around the United States and giving up his helicopter, his flights, his cars, everything, Mm -hmm. and living poverty, chastity, and obedience in a monastery, giving everything up. That's what Edmund Rice was. He was a very rich, powerful man hmm. and gave it all up to find the Christian brothers. Nano Nago, another woman from a, a, a rich background, gives it all up to found the Presentation Sisters. Catherine McCauley, coming from a Protestant background, converting Catholicism, and coming from a wealthy background, giving it all up hmm. to become Catholic. Blessed John Sullivan, Blessed John Sullivan would have been the archetypal unionist, Protestant unionist. He was brought up Anglican. His father was the Lord Chief Justice of Ireland. And he converted to Catholicism and becomes a Jesuit. He leaves a wonderful life of rich to live in a Jesuit monastery. I mean, these people were just fantastic. And, you know... The early Sisters of Mercy and the early Nanonagel Sisters, they went out with nothing. Mm-hmm. They'd be sent off to open a school in Dublin and they'd have nothing. 
no convent, no proper school, and they created them all. And I remember hmm. when I was in McCroom, I was chaplain to the Sisters of Mercy. And I said to Sister, I said, what did the nuns, when they came down here, what did they have? She said nothing, she said, except a crucifix that had been given to us by the founder. Wow. They had no monastery, they had nothing. They built all that up. And they built their schools up. And these were people who were living in an Ireland that was very poor. I mean, Dublin in the early 20th century was described as the Calcutta of Europe. It was so poor. Wow. And they went in, you know, the, the first Sisters of Charities, for instance, when cholera hit Dublin in the late 1700s, all the politicians left, everybody left. But the sisters saved so many people in Dublin. They looked after them. They went round house to house. They fed them. They did everything for them. And, you know, that's uh, any other place. They'd all been canonized. Mm. So it, I don't know what it is with us Irish about our saints or something. I don't know whether we expect them to be floating saints and by location and smell of perfume. Mm -hmm. But, you know, sanctity is just the ordinary, everyday grind of life. So There's Father, nothing spectacular about it. Father, who do, who do we start with when we do this, this series? Who would you like to discuss first? I think we should start with the, the list of 200 martyrs because they're the oldest ones. Let's do that. We'll and talk. so we could go through that. We'll talk yeah. on offline and uh, and we'll set up a date where we can start this this project. Okay. I'd really Perfect. love that. Father, I've kept you long enough. I know you've got probably things to do around the parish <laughs> on a Saturday morning slash afternoon. Um, could I just get you to give us a blessing? Yes. The Lord be with you. With you. May mighty God come down upon you and remain with you always in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So for my, my guest, Father Gabriel Burke, uh, my producer, David Imhoff, I'm down the hall, Dave, always praying. Your troubles be less, your blessings be more, and nothing but happiness come through your door. See you next time.